you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, in chapter 5. Book of Hebrews, in chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading at verse 8, excuse me, verse 5, and go through to verse 8. Hebrews 5, verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Let's pray and ask God's help as we look again into his word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this time to be together and to study your great truth. And Father, we do pray that you who said to your son on the shores of the Jordan, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Father, may you by the spirit uh, enable us all to see that one in whom you take such delight. And Father, we sang that he is the joy of all who dwell below And he's the joy of all those on earth who have been made to see his glory. But Father, we confess that our eyes are often off of him and we want them placed afresh upon him. Father, may we fix our eyes upon Jesus now and ever and always. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I was uh, recently listening to a podcast that was devoted... Uh, to a recently republished commentary on the book of Romans. Now, that commentary was written by a man named John Murray, who was a a professor for years at Westminster Seminary. He's now with the Lord, uh, an old Scott uh, Presbyterian, who wrote this wonderful commentary on Romans. It's not inaccessible to God's people. It's not... Uh, You don't have to be a scholar to read and appreciate uh, this commentary. But in the podcast, they were interviewing two prominent Scottish pastors in our day. And they are men that I I would imagine everyone here has listened to at least one of them preach uh, a number of times. And and, and most of you, I think, have probably heard both of them uh, preach on occasion. They are men that we would feel very honored if they came and preached uh, in our pulpit, one a Baptist and one a Presbyterian. But they've had ministries that have lasted for decades, and they both talked about how intimidated they have been throughout their ministry to do an exposition through the book of Romans. As much as they know, as much as they preached, as, as much as they have explored wonderful themes, they're intimidated. Men in their 60s or maybe in one case 70s saying, I'm still too intimidated to preach through Romans. Uh, I remember Pastor Al Martin, under whom I I studied for four years, saying the same things. He said, I'm not mature enough yet to preach through Romans. Now, sometimes that's echoed in my mind as, I preach through Romans. 
Uh, what are you doing? Well, though I may not have felt all of that with Romans, I sure feel it when I come to Hebrews. And there are times I think, what were you doing? Why did you choose this book? And why did you choose passages like these that are before us, which are so obviously filled with glory, but that also plumb depths or scale heights that feel beyond the ability of any normal mortal to be able either to plumb or to ascend. The passage before us is on the one hand rather clear and obvious, but what becomes apparent is not so much identifying the well, so to speak, or to alternately the mountain, so I'll say the well. It's not so much identifying the well, it's how deep this well goes. It's not saying, well, hey guys, there's, it's one thing to say there's Everest. It's another thing to say, let's climb it. For here, we peer into truths that have stretched the minds of the greatest theologians of all time. We find here truths that have brought together church councils, particularly in the early centuries of the church, to agonize over various words and their specific meanings so that they might accurately present to their generation and to all generations a portrait of the person of Christ without misrepresentation. And one of those ancient creeds ends with these words, this is the Catholic faith. Now they mean by that not the Roman Catholic faith, there was no such thing at that time, but they mean the universal faith. This is the faith of all of God's people, which except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved. That is, get Christ wrong misrepresent him, fail to embrace his deity or his humanity and how deity and humanity are together in one person and you cannot be saved. We cannot afford to be wrong about Jesus. We cannot afford to be wrong in regard to the safety, security, and happiness of our souls if we misunderstand or misrepresent the nature of God. And so we say of those who are oneness people, that is, they do not believe that God is triune. They cannot sing as we sing, holy, 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 God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Of those who refer to the Trinity as some kind of theological three-headed monster. And we say to them that we cannot embrace you. No, we don't simply say that's not orthodox. We say that's not Christian. That to deny God in three persons is to deny the Catholic universal faith, the creedal faith of all of God's people. And unless we believe this faithfully, we cannot be saved. To deny the truth about Jesus is to be partnered as John brings out and as our own pastor John brought out recently in First John. It is the spirit of Antichrist. 
to deny the theology of Christ in coming in the flesh is not just to misrepresent the truth. It's not just to miss the mark. It's not just to be less than precise or robust in your theology. It is to be one with the spirit of Antichrist. Now, what does this high view of Christ have to do with the book of Hebrews? Well, you say, well, everything, right? This is a book. This is an exposition of the doctrine of Christ. So yes, it matters that we are orthodox. It matters that we speak, and we're going to focus on this, the true doctrine of the person of Christ. But beyond that, or in association with that, it matters, and perhaps in, in, in regard to your own soul here, I, I, I'm, I'm not overly worried about a lack of orthodoxy here. But I am concerned of those who embrace an orthodox doctrine, but have not embraced from the soul the one to whom the doctrine points. It will do you no good on the day of judgment to stand before a glorious Christ and say, I could articulate doctrine about you when you have never bent the knee to him, never believed upon him, never embraced him. You are not trusting to him or clinging to him. For the point of this book is not simply behold your Christ. It is believe on him and cling to him till the day you die. It is that you must not lose him in the midst of persecution and hardship and loss and confusion and dark and inexplicable providence. So that when life crashes in upon you and you don't understand how you're going to survive because you've lost your job and lost your home and you're facing a lion's den. That you say not only there is a doctrine that I cling to that I cannot renounce, but that there is a man in heaven who is there at the Father's right hand for me. And that's my hope. You see, this is a book that reminds us that we cannot, and this is particularly true in this book, we cannot simply say that I believe, well, I believe in God. Well, again, the Bible would say, congratulations, so does the devil. And we cannot even say, no, 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 uh, Jim, I, I believe in the God of the Bible. That is what I mean by that is I believe in the God who reveals himself in the Old Testament scriptures. I embrace the God of Abraham, the God of, uh, of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses. I believe in the God who brought people out of bondage in Egypt and led them through the wilderness and into the promised land and who established his nation and who established his worship and even later gave them a king shepherd in David and spoke to them by the mouths of the prophets. I just don't believe in Jesus. And the answer of the book of Hebrews is, well, then what is the great purpose of all of these other things? To what do they point and whom do they reveal but the Savior? And to have all of these things, but to deny Jesus or, in the case of some, having embraced him and now to reject him, is to bring upon yourself temporal consequences. What you, this is really what you're after, temporal consequence. You, you think you're avoiding certain struggles but reject Jesus and, and see what life is like without him but there is also eternal consequence 
For to believe God, to really believe God, we must believe all that he has revealed. And especially we must embrace that one who stands at the heart of his revelation from Genesis through to the end of Revelation. And we must embrace the redemption that is in his son and only in his son. Now when the man born blind was brought before the religious leaders in John chapter 9, you remember that? situation and, and uh, he's telling everybody about Jesus it's it's it, it's it's a remarkable narrative there are elements in it that if we would I don't know we would cry and perhaps laugh at some of what transpired with all of it but we read and I'm picking up here at a certain point in the narrative John 9 27 through 29 uh, where they, he says at one point when they're asking him all these questions about Jesus and the blind, the man who had been blind says, do you want to become his disciples? Is that why you're asking me all these questions? Because you, know, you just want to know the answer so that you too can believe in Jesus. And they say, you are his disciple. But we are Moses' disciple. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow... We do not know where he is from. And Hebrews 5 says, we'll sit down and listen then. Because I'll tell you where he's from. And I will tell you who sent him. Here in this portion and in much of the book of Hebrews, the author wants to show how much we need a high priest. Now again, I've been a Christian for 45 years I don't know, I fully, I don't fully understand anything. I should be very careful what I say. I now fully understand this. I had a very weak understanding of why I needed a high priest. A high priest. And a great high priest. And a faithful and merciful high priest. And why I needed him to be man and why I need him to be God. I I mean, I I would have said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Prophet, priest, and king, of course, I need... Prophet, priest. I need a prophet, and I need a and I, and I need a king, and and sure, I need a priest. But God has helped me, and I hope He's helped you to understand why you need a high priest. And not only do you need a high priest, and just simply to say one one quick re- answer of the scriptures, and this really starts this whole discussion. It's because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it divides into the depths of bone and marrow and spirit and soul and is a revealer of the hearts and we must all be called to stand before the God uh, before whom all things are open and laid bare and you're going to give an account because the word of God reveals you and because you're going to stand before God you're going to say to yourself I need someone to offer a sacrifice for me and someone to stand between me and God and someone to intercede in me if all of that is true. And it's because those things are true that we need a high priest. And not only do we need a high priest, Jesus is that high priest. Now, in our last study some weeks ago, we saw the human side of the high priesthood. And we talked about that we learn sometimes through comparison and contrast and how this is like that. And so he describes in the opening verses, let me go ahead and read it. Uh, Hebrews 5, 1, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, and that terminology has been used earlier in Hebrews, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. 
Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. So that's the prelude to what we come now to see. Now, I had intended to preach this whole section. And I had three headings under which I was going to preach it. And they are, Jesus was sent by God. Jesus was in anguish before God. I was going to touch on his humanity and all of the rest. And then Jesus learned obedience to God. We're only going to get to number one. So I have a one-point sermon. (laughs) I hope that's allowable. Jesus was sent by God. That's my point. Now, again, one of the aspects of the priesthood, which the writer has dealt with, is stated in this word, no one takes this honor to himself, but one who is called by God, just as Aaron was. And you can read in the, you know, the Leviticus and Numbers and these things are are brought out there. So why was, who were the priests under the old covenant? Just the priests. They were the, what tribe? The Levites. Why were they, why, why couldn't uh, any of the others be, why, why, did, why were they the priests? Because God said so. You okay with that? You don't like hearing that from other people. Because I said so. Well, God can say that all he wants. Why the Levites? I said so. Who got to be the family of the high priest? Who's the head? Aaron, why? Because God said so. That's it. Now you have to believe that God spoke to Moses to believe that. I mean, and, and, and so he proved it, had to demonstrate it, right? Well, how do we know? All right, let's take all these rods from every tribe and we'll put them before God and we'll see how God deals with them. And everybody write their name on it. Aaron writes his name on a staff and it buds and it even has almonds on it. It's amazing. Overnight, right? And, and God shows, this is it. This is the one that I have chosen. So who gets to be a high priest? How do you get this job? Can anyone do it? It wasn't an issue of gifting, but of calling. And not internal calling rooted in a strong desire, as you might have for the eldership. But it was fully an external call, a divine call. God chose the priestly family. And the high priestly family. And evidenced it, as I said, not only by word, but by providence and even the working of a miracle. But what about Jesus? To the point of certain first century Jews, we know God spoke to Moses. But this fellow, we know that God spoke to Abraham and to Moses, and to Isaiah, and to Jeremiah, and we have staked our hope and our identity upon that. But how do we know if God has spoken to us in these last days by a son? And that this son is appointed heir of all things. Now we have staked our hope on this. This is all our hope and plea. You want to go to heaven? You want to be forgiven? It's all rooted in our confidence 
that God who spoke in various times and in various ways to the prophets and days of old has spoken to us in these last days by his son whom he appointed heir of all things. If that's wrong, either there is a holy God who is unreconciled to us or the whole thing's a sham. How do we know? Well, the book of Hebrews is answering this in a variety of ways. It answered it earlier in Hebrews 2, and I think that there's relevance here in the uh, Hebrews 2, 2 uh, through 4 to this. Let me read that for you. You can just flip over and look at it as I read. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, I was talking about the old covenant and the place of angels in the giving of the old covenant, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, what happened to those who failed to live up to what God had revealed, how shall we escape? So how will they escape if they neglected the salvation from Egypt? Here's a greater salvation through Jesus. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now this is to the point, which was at the first, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord. That is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus is the inescapable figure of all humanity. Everybody, every religion has to weigh in on Jesus because he's not like everybody else. And everybody recognizes that. And you got to have some category, some place to put him. Why do you even have to answer the question? What will you do with this Jesus called the Christ? Well, he'll, he's a good teacher. Well, he's this. Well, he's that. But in his ministry, he said things and did things that nobody else did. So in the scriptures, in the Old Testament scriptures, there's a reference to the Lord who walks upon the sea. And what does the carpenter of Nazareth do? He walks on the sea. Was this man that even the winds and waves obey him? Who is it that can open the ears of the deaf and the eyes of the blind? Who speaks words with such authority as this one who goes into a grave and comes out of a grave? Began to be spoken by Jesus. It was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Hey, I was there. And we were there, Peter, James, and John. Hey, he brought us in, went to Jairus' daughter. And we saw her rise from the dead. I was in that boat. You heard the story about, and one man said, well, I heard about one guy who kind of walked on water for a little bit and felt, yeah, and Peter going, that was me. That was me. I was, yeah, that, that, that's, you know, yep, right here. I did that. I heard that. But then God also bearing witness, God bearing witness with signs and wonders and with various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. There were things happening and dynamics that were going on in the days of the gospel and in the age of the apostles. Inexplicable. The prophesying. 
the understanding of truth, the raising of the dead, the healing of sickness, and all of the rest that went on so that, you know, somebody like Paul can, after the shipwreck, have a, a viper attached to his hand when he goes to lay firewood on and everybody goes, oh, he must be a murderer and the gods are after him. And then he shakes it off and they're waiting for him to swell up and die and he doesn't. And they change their mind and say he's a god. And what they're saying is this doesn't just happen. There's something about these men and this message and the one they're talking about. And so now here in the text, he says, listen, all right, Jesus showed who he was. The apostles verified it. God showed his stamp of approval when they taught and when they preached with signs and wonders and miracles that people saw. But now he's going to say, well, let's go back. Because you want to answer the question, this is really the question, did, did Jesus just appoint himself? Did Jesus just show up on the scene and somehow he had the power to do the stuff that he did and start a little cult or start a, start a religion or trying to whatever people say he was doing, some countercultural hippie movement or whatever, whatever it was? Or was there a divine sending? Did God send Jesus just as he, he sent Moses? And did he appoint Jesus to a priesthood just as he appointed Aaron? And if so, when and where? So he says, well, let me open up a couple of passages for you. And here he says, the first one is Psalm 2. And so Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he, the father, who said to him, who appointed Aaron to be high priest? God did. Who appointed Jesus to be a high priest? God did. The father did. And when and where did he do it? So that we look at it and you go, well, Jesus didn't take this glory to himself. It was appointed for him. It was given to him. It was bestowed upon him divinely. Well, he says, look at Psalm 2. All right, so go ahead. If you want to turn back or you can just listen as I read it, Psalm 2. And brethren, do you want to have something that feels very contemporary? And if you're fearful and if you're fretful, Psalm 37 deals with the fear and the fretfulness of God's people in the midst of hard times. Do any of you think we're living in hard times? Do any of you wish we lived in a different time and the things were other than they are? You ever wish that? And you say, oh, I, why did I have to live now? Why do I have to, you know, why couldn't I live here when everything was so much better? Or, you know, whatever, whatever you have in your mind. Well, I wish I could have lived in the days of David. Oh, you mean when the nations raged and the peoples imagined a vain thing, those days? Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves together. Despite all their different thoughts and philosophies and gods and religions, here they are combined. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, Yahweh, and his Christ, his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And God says, Oh no, what am I going to do now? We got to hide. 
he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. And then he shall speak to them in his wrath. And distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet, and brethren, here's our hope and here's our confidence. And this is why God's people in the midst of persecution and hardship have an inexplicable hope. A tangible, inexplicable hope that others have to ask us, why are you so steady? Because God has set his king on his holy hill of Zion. I've set my king on my holy hill. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, that is to this king, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Now, it's not my point today to open all of this up. I I, I want to come back at some point here and I want to preach Psalm 2 and I want to preach Psalm 37 to us, to believers living in an anxious age. Now, again, there is so much here for us to study. But in the context of Hebrews 5, the point is this. Just as God appointed Aaron and his sons to be high priests, so too did God send Jesus into this dark and rebellious world. He spoke to him. He set him. He sent him. Now, in Psalm 2, it's his kingship. In Psalm 110, which we'll look at in just a moment, it's his high priesthood. But these things have overlap and bearing on one another god has set his king on his holy mountain again how else do you explain this man and the effect he has had upon the world look at just study and think through the facts of the person and work of christ that he didn't do any of the things and i'm not unique in saying this there's there's whole poems and speeches and essays written on this how he led no army, he wrote no book, he never did any of the things that people associate with greatness. He dies as a convicted felon and hung on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem, a, a, a province of Rome, and yet he is loved and adored as King of kings and Lord of lords. How does that happen? Except that he is God's appointed man. He was sent by God and appointed by God to be his king who would rule in the midst of his enemies. Now Psalm 110 is going to begin with that so that there is a a combination of the two. God's declaration to a hostile world, a world that would say of the gospel and the invitation to come under the sweet bonds of, of God's will and God's law and God's grace, nah, we don't want that. And they together reject it. They don't want God, they don't want his Christ, and God's response is to appoint his son as king. And in the midst of that, he says of this king, you are my son, today I have begotten you. All right, now here is where you have to make sure you don't dip into into error and, and heresy. What in the world does this mean? God says to him, today, you are my son, today I have begotten. And, and you say, well, 
What's it mean to be begotten? And when was Jesus begotten? There are volumes of theology on this. Now, begotten generally means to bring forth. Uh, as in parents bring forth or beget a child. And I don't know why it leaves the ladies out, but Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob. They had help. <laughs> <laughs> but they're brought forth. Let's see, they're brought forth. They're, 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 they come into existence in this way. So, so what does it mean that Jesus is begotten? Does, is Jesus come into existence? And was there a day that he came into existence? Does this mean that there was a time when he was not the son and he became the son? Or some claim a time when he was not at all. So Arius, the, the, you know, the, the, the uh, proto-heretic behind the Jehovah's Witness, guy actually had a song. I don't know what it sounded like, but I know some of the lyrics. There was a time when he was not. Let's all sing together, there was a time when he was not. That's what they did. So what does this mean that he was brought into being? The answer of God's people is no. Why? Because he is God. Therefore, he is uncreated. I, I, had a rigid, I was going to read you all these creeds. I'm going to read you portions of some. The Athanasian Creed. You ever heard of the Athanasian Creed? All right, this is part of the Athanasian Creed. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. That's what Christians confess. That's Christian orthodoxy. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and made of the substance of his mother, born in the world, perfect God and perfect man. Now, I can say that and read that relatively well. Do I get all that? Nope. Can I explain all of this, particularly substance of the Father begotten before the worlds? In what way begotten? Yes. God, very God, very man. And then the Nicene Creed. You've heard of the Nicene Creed? If you haven't, this is part of our ancient, this is part of our ancient faith, folks. Uh, our, our faith is an ancient faith. And it's a creedal faith and a confessional faith. And these are the, the universal statements of truth from God's people. In the Nicene Creed, it reads this, he is, and I'm adding those words, he is, he is the only begotten son of God, begotten of the father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the father by whom all things were made. Now, he was set forth, not born and not made, but set forth by the Father before the world. He was in the beginning with God and was God. 
But in regard to Psalm 2, and I'm going to try to now prove what this means, in regard to Psalm 2 and in regard to this, what is being brought out here, is that something transpired in time, and this is a lot of what the writer is going to get at, is to consider Christ coming into the world and what it meant. The second person of the Godhead does what the Father and the Spirit do not do and have not done. He steps into time. The eternal God enters into time and embraces our humanity in covenant with the Father. And as we'll see later in the, see later in the book of Hebrews, he's able to say when he comes into the world, here I am. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. That is, I'm coming. It was announced long ago that I would come. And I came in fulfillment of what my father and I had agreed upon before the world came. Now, in his humanity, the father sends the son, as it were, the Holy Spirit. The triune God is involved. The Holy Spirit, in the gentle language of the scriptures, overshadows Mary. And that one who is eternal took on flesh and blood by the Father's decree. Without ceasing to be what he always was, he became something he had never been. He had always been God, but now he becomes a man. And he is forever now the God-man. Now this truth is gloriously set forth at our Lord's baptism. This language of this is my son. So when Jesus is baptized, Matthew chapter 3 goes into the water, the spirit descends as a dove upon him, and a voice comes from heaven and says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Behold my son. I set him forth to the world. And then again at the transfiguration, this is my beloved son. Now with the uh, command to follow, listen to him. Now the question comes, is this what the text is referring to? Is it referring to his birth? Comes into the world? Is it at his baptism, this is my beloved son? Is it at his transfiguration, this is my beloved son? Is that where the father fulfilled the words of Psalm 2? Today you are my son, or you are my son today... At this time and in this event, I have begotten you or brought you forth. Well, I think the Bible answers this question in a sermon preached by Paul in Acts chapter 13. Listen to what is said in Acts 13. I'm going to pick up reading at verse 29. Acts 13 beginning at verse 29. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, and again, a reminder that the Old Testament is about Jesus. When they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, that all the prophecies might be fulfilled in Jesus, they took him down from the tree. Well, there in context, I should say, all concerning his death. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. How do we know God sent Jesus to be the king priest? How do we know he didn't send himself? 
Because a priest can't send himself. A priest can't appoint himself. God has to do it. Right? That's the argument. God raised him from the dead. And he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Who are witnesses of the people. And we declared to you the glad tidings. That the promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for their children in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm you are my son today I have begotten you and that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption he has spoken thus I will give you the sure mercies of David The scriptures are fulfilled in God's miraculous setting forth. As I said the other day, there's a sense in which we could argue the stone rolled away is the budded rod of Jesus saying, this is my high priest. And today I have set you forth, brought you forth as the resurrected king of my people. Now, it's not the only text he quotes. And he also says in another another psalm or in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is quoting Psalm 110. Now let me give you the, the whole of that verse in context. This is very important. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now again, what's he trying to prove? Jesus did not take this glory to himself. To become this one, no, God sent him. The God of the scriptures, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and, and Moses also He showed signs and wonders and miracles in the days of his life. He would show them through the apostles, but he showed it in raising him from the dead and saying, in the resurrection, you are my son, today I begotten you. And so the Lord has also sworn, and again, this is so crucial, divine identity, the God of the Bible, the covenant God of Israel has sworn and will not relent. He spoke to a man saying, you are a priest forever. God appointed a priest. But according to the order of Melchizedek. Now who in the world is this guy? This is one of the most striking, unusual, amazing, (laughs) seemingly out of the blue statements. And it becomes for the writer of the Hebrews his bread and butter passage. He loves this passage. And he delights to see and show forth Jesus from this passage. Now, I'm going to have a lot to say about this in the days ahead. So just hang on. Just come back. Keep coming back. Come back. And little by little, we'll finally get to the end of this section. I'm not even going to get into chapter 7 and all the rest right now. I'm just going to say very little about it. So Melchizedek. Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, was king of a place called Salem, also known as Jerusalem. 
And he appears along with Abraham briefly in Genesis. And that's it, you think. Oh, nice little bit with this guy who shows up and gives a blessing to Abraham and Abraham pays him some tithes. And then silence about Melchizedek for a thousand years. And in the midst of a psalm about a king that would come forth from the Davidic line is this little bit about a forever priest who would not come from the line of Aaron, but who would nevertheless be sent by God. That's the point. He's, that's, that's the major point we need to get right now. Now, Psalm 110 is referred to by, by many. Uh, this is the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament. Now, when you look at it, it you know, when we count that, we count it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so sometimes it's the same, it's the same account. It was one of the texts Jesus used to describe himself and how it is that he could be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that God would take one of the sons of David and make him a king over Israel forever, but that he could also be divine. How, how, can, why, how, could, how could David say to his son, seemingly a lesser, that you're also, my Lord, a superior? Now, we don't think this way. Now, obviously, I'm a lot better than my son. No, say no. I don't. See, now you would say, "Well, Jim, you're, no, you're not." You know, you know let, let your son be your son. But you know, in those days, hey, if you had a son, until you died, you were the great one. You were the big Kahuna. And how rare it would be for a father to look at a son and say, "You're my lord." How can that be? How can a person be his son and yet his lord? That's what Jesus. He said, "Well, this is talked about in Psalm 110, isn't it?" The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 2, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Again, note this language, divine sending, divine sending, divine appointment. Jesus doesn't take this glory to himself. God gives him this glory. You say, well, I know he sent Moses. Well, listen to me as I show you from life and from the scriptures that he sent Jesus. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauty of beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. All right. Now again, that sounds rather jarring, doesn't it? It's like, wait a minute, what? You know, all this kingly language, all of a sudden, hey, remember that guy, Genesis 14? We haven't talked about in a thousand years. Well, he's like that. So you try the drawing. You're reading the psalm in its context about the coming king from the line of David, the great king, the king who will rule over all the nations and people, the king who will bring forth judgment. And then what does he do? The Lord has sworn... And he will not relent. That is, he's not going to go back on this promise. You will see this promise fulfilled. And if not, God's not faithful. 
So when you read that and you hear that the Lord has sworn and will not relent, what does a statement like that make you do? Well, it should make you anticipate the coming of a different kind of priest. Well, didn't the Lord swear and he won't relent from what he has sworn that someday a a priest like Melchizedek is going to come? And that should have raised an anticipation of a non-Levitical, non-Aaronic priest who would come that God would send. Don't be offended that Jesus is not of the line of Levi or the line of Aaron. He doesn't have to be. I told you a thousand years ago that he wouldn't be. That he'd come from David's line. And be a king and that he could still be a priest that I have sent. Because I did this a thousand years before that with Abraham. Isn't that beautiful? Puts all the scriptures together in this way. The son who must be. Well, let me go back. This shows us that the forever king would also be a forever priest. A different kind of king and a different kind of priest. Now on the surface, this shows that whoever this man would be, you ask what would happen when he would actually come? Because these are foretelling. He's not yet able to say, here I am. The son who must be, according to Psalm 2, kissed. And the one equally who would rule in the midst of his enemies. And what were they facing at this time? What was the trouble for the Hebrews? Trouble. People being united against the Lord's Christ. So what would separate them from Christ? In their own hearts and in their own lives, the fear of enemies. That's one of the reasons Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 8, what shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall peril, shall sword, persecution? Don't have to worry about it. Don't have to worry about those things. Well, what if they kill me? Um, you go to heaven? The fear of enemies. The very thing that would make many ashamed of Christ today, Right? The very thing that's emptying churches, especially of the younger generation, who are being commanded to bow the knee to the gods of this age. Remember God, the God of heaven and earth, has set his son on his holy hill. He shall and does rule and reign as king in the midst of his enemies. The fact that there are enemies doesn't mean he doesn't rule. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, describing the great power of God, says this, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
You know, the beautiful feet that bring good news that Isaiah spoke of and Paul piggybacks on in Romans 10 are those who proclaim the truth that your God reigns. But not only does he rule and reign, he will be appointed in these things appointed to God. That is, he will be set aside as a distinct breed of priest. For the Jews who would again reject the priesthood of Jesus on the basis that he's not a Levite or that he's from the tribe of Judah can go to these Psalms and anchor themselves in revelation given a thousand years before and show how a man can be a king and a priest unknown. For the Jews, kings had to come from David and priests had to come from Levi, but one can come uh, and be priest and king. The writer says, remember the promise of a zealous God made a thousand years ago? Do you remember that there was a priest before Abraham had a son, before that son had a son, and that son had a son named Levi? Remember that? Again, more on that in the verses to follow, but for now, as you struggle, and perhaps struggle sometimes to find an excuse to let go of Jesus, or to turn your back on him, or to be ashamed of him. You have to remember who you're rejecting. You cannot say, I will embrace the Father and reject the Son. I will believe upon the God who gave us David, but reject David's son. I'll embrace Aaron, sinful and stumbling though Aaron was, but reject the sinless, higher, greater priest who came in the order of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness and the king of peace. You see, he did not send himself. He was in the beginning with God and was God. And if that's not true, again, then anything and everything I say all falls apart. This is all just, hey, you know, so let's go ahead and let's just preach how-to sermons and uh, how to be nice and how to clean up the environment and how to live your best life now. But if this is who Jesus is, and the Father sent him, then you've got to stand your ground here. He didn't send himself. He was in the beginning with God and was God, and yet this one, this word of the Father, became flesh. And not simply to the end that he would fulfill the promises as glorious as they are, the promise of priesthood and king. But brethren, unto what end did he take flesh? Not just to be followed and worshipped. But look at what he did in his flesh. The words of verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He comes and he comes to the garden and the cup is placed before him. And there's something in his humanity and in his holy soul that finds revulsion from drinking the cup of the Father's wrath, of becoming sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And God hears him because of his godly fear, because his ultimate prayer was not save me from death, but your will be done. And he says, I'll answer that prayer. My will will be done to you and in you and through you. He offers those prayers and cries and tears in the garden. 
And have you ever thought sometimes, and we struggle with this, how can this be the same man? How does the man of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 with rods of iron and ruling and reigning become the weeping man of the Gospels? How does the God who laughs appoint a sovereign, ruling, judging king who is heard in his sighs and groans and tears? Because the king is also a priest who will offer up a sacrifice for sin that is his own body and blood so that the rebels that he is just in crushing might come and by his grace kiss the sun and by faith find not eternal wrath but eternal life. This is the king of our king. This is the king of kings. This is the Lord of lords. This is God's high priest. It's God's beloved son. Listen to him. It's God's beloved son. Come to him in loving adoration and faith. Let him protect you. Let him conquer your enemies. Let him take your sin upon himself. And go to him when you are weary and in need of help to his throne, which is a throne of grace. And approach it with the confidence of those made new by his grace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these moments rich in blessing, which before the throne and the cross we come. We thank you for that one who rules. We thank you for that one who prays. We thank you for that one who died, that one who is risen, that one who reigns on high. May we love and adore him and treasure him without compromise all the days of our life. We pray in Jesus' matchless name.